The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Good afternoon. It's a uh, real privilege to be with you today and to uh, share in worship with you. Some months ago, I called Eric and I. I uh, sort of invited myself to come. Uh, I shared with him that I spend a lot of time uh, visiting our different churches. We're uh, uh, churches that are scattered in 27 different countries. And a lot of the churches that I visit are churches that are having problems. And so I said, you know, I don't get a lot of opportunity to visit churches that are doing well and just to uh, encourage them and thank them for uh, their participation uh, through the years uh, in our partnership in the gospel. And so uh, Eric invited me to come and I'm, I'm thankful to be able to come and to say thank you to, to you and uh, hopefully to encourage as well as to challenge you from God's word uh, this, this afternoon. Uh, I'm very thankful for Eric and Kim who've served in our convention for a number of, uh, a number of years and we've uh, gotten to know each other very well and also for Austin and Ashland as they've come to serve in the last several years uh, here in your church. Uh, met Anne, I think we had met before, but your secretary and other leaders in your church. And so it's wonderful to be able to uh, come and share with you. And just to uh, acknowledge that you guys have been partners uh, with other churches, English-speaking international churches in every way. Uh, not only have you been ge generous in your giving of finances as we try to do some projects together as a, as a family of churches, but also in people. Uh, Eric, Eric has a unique place in our convention in that he has served two times as our president. I, as far as I know, he's the only one that's, that's done that. And uh, now he's set another record because he served two times as our past president, which is also part of our uh, officers that we have in the convention. But he's also served uh, on our budget and finance ministry team in a number of other ways. And, and just appreciate uh, his involvement, but also the church's involvement you all, through Eric, uh, have, have been vitally involved in, uh, in our church planting efforts uh, as we have looked at places to plant churches and right now are, are getting close to planting a new church, a second church in Berlin. Um, you've come alongside other churches. Uh, some of you will be aware that we have a church in Alborg on the uh, western side of, of Denmark in, in the Jutland, and uh, you all have been an encouragement to them. Uh, by the way, there's a, an article in the highlights, I think we have some of those here, that uh, talks about Alborg and, and just their recent uh, becoming a church on their own, sort of like you did about uh, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, you all have also been involved in our mission, our partnership in Moldova, uh, and I think Eric has probably shared some with you there. It was good to see Susie again after a number of years, who's kind of been your representative, uh, as well as uh, the representative from Denmark and in Burundi, where she served for seven years, I think, and uh, very interesting work, and also have done a lot of local outreach. So uh, thank you for, for being God's church uh, here in this place. And today I want to talk to you about the church. I want to talk to you about uh, your church. I want to talk to you about uh, my church. We're members of a church in Frankfurt, Germany. I want to talk to you about 
the local church, but also the universal church, the church that's scattered around the world. And I want to talk to you a little bit about our family of churches that we call the, the IBC. The church is not an afterthought uh, of the Christian life. It's not an afterthought of Christian doctrine, but it's very central uh, to God's plan for history. Now today it's very common. Many people bypass the church or sort of look at it as an add-on to our faith that is you know, something you can do or not do, but Jesus did not consider it an add-on and neither does the scriptures. To think of a Christian who is not part of a church is sort of like imagining a great soccer player who's never played on a soccer team or a great, uh, in, in the United States, a great baseball player who's never played on a baseball team. It's sort of like thinking of an arm or a leg without a body or a sheep that is just lives on its own without, uh, without a flock. And so today, I, if I was to give a title to the message, uh, I would call it Back to the Future. Those of you that are a little bit older will remember the movie in 1985 called Back to the Future. And there was a, uh, an actor, uh, Michael J. Fox, who played the part of Marty McFly. And Marty McFly goes back 30 years uh, to 1955 to meet his parents-to-be, who of course didn't know that they would be his parents. And uh, he eventually returns to 1985 with the help of an eccentric uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Emmett Doc Brown, who is played by Christopher Lloyd. But I've only borrowed the title. I don't want to talk to you about the, the movie anymore. Uh, the great uh, well-known evangelist Billy Graham was once criticized for his way of preaching the Bible as being uh, truthful, as being relevant for today. And uh, someone criticized him and said that you have set the church back 100 years. And Billy Graham replied, well, that was not my intention to set the church back 100 years. My intention is to set the church back 2,000 years. In other words, if we're going to be relevant today, we need to come to re-embrace who the church was, what God called the church to be when he first set up the church. Uh, times change, uh, culture changes, and yet today, for the church to move toward the future, seeking to be a relevant voice of truth and hope, I think we need to go back and we need to rediscover what Christ calls his church to be. Because the church is really not our idea, but the church is his idea. The church really doesn't belong to us, but in fact, it belongs to Jesus Christ, the founder of the church. Uh, Christ promised, I will build my church. And so in many parts of the world, and that's particularly true in our part of the world, in the global north and, and west, oftentimes the church uh, seems almost silent and irrelevant, weak and struggling. But there are parts of the world where that is certainly not the case. In many countries where uh, in, in the North and in the West, uh, the loud voices that we hear all around us, the voices of, of secularism that tends to push 
uh, religion out of the public sphere or the voice of materialism that places as its highest goal uh, having possessions and owning, owning things or the voice of individualism which says, you know, I am unique in myself and I don't need anyone else. My goal is to, uh, as I think it was uh, Frank Sinatra saying, to do it my way. Those voices are very loud in our culture. But we live in a society that is oftentimes hostile and other times indifferent to the church. But we cannot ignore the church. Sometimes the church in an attempt to be relevant has uh, watered down its message to the point that it no longer has anything to say because it's speaking the same voice as the culture around us is speaking. It can no longer speak to culture. It cannot be the salt that Christ called us to be or the light that Christ called us to be. So Christ in scripture calls us back to the message of Christ. The apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the message of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And the message of the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We need to come back to the mission of the church, which Jesus said was to go and make disciples of all nations. And we need to come back to this overarching vision of the church, a vision that is so vast because it represents a people from every age, a people that are so vast that no one is able to count from every nation and tribe and culture, giving honor to the one who is worthy of it. We enjoyed spending some time with many of you yesterday at your FIBC day. And I love your motto, which we all learn, which is God's truth in love. And uh, also your, your mission statement, which uh, says that your church exists as an international community in Copenhagen who do two things, who faithfully proclaim God's word, but who also visibly display God's love uh, as, you, as, you, as you move ahead. Our group of churches that we call the IBC is also looking to the future. Uh, just last year, we looked and began to ask ourselves, why should we even have a family of churches? Why, why do we exist? And we felt like that our mission, the reason that we existed, was to assist churches, to mobilize churches, and to multiply disciple-making churches. To mobilize, that is to help churches to live out their God-given vision and mission, but also to multiply those churches as they make disciples. And as we thought about what we wanted to uh, become, our, our vision for the future, we said that we envision a movement of global-minded churches who are multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, and multiplying congregations. And we always want to do that with the right kind of values. And so when we get together, we uh, we, all, we, we place a high value on fellowship, of getting to know one another, but also partnership, of working together. We place a high value on diversity because our churches are very diverse. 
Some of our churches are made up of uh, business people, international business people. Some of our churches have a lot of students. Some of them have a lot of refugees. Some of them are made up of uh, military personnel or diplomatic personnel. And all of our churches have nationals in every church. I'm sure you have a lot of, I know you have some Danes in your church. And so our churches are quite diverse and yet we want to celebrate that. That's not something that we're, uh, that we're embarrassed about. We also, though, want to celebrate our unity, that we have something that brings us together. We want to celebrate and, and we want to place as a value that churches are healthy and that churches are multiplying. If you pick up one of these copies of our highlights, which we put out every few months, you can read a, an article in there about the joy of cooperation, because that's what we want to do together. There's also an article in there about Alborg, if you want to read about that. So we want to help churches to live out their dream of fulfilling the mission that God has given to them, working together and our partnership together in unity, to see churches that are healthy and churches that are growing to be salt and light, living out the mission that God has, has, has given to them. And I always rejoice when I visit churches and to see how God is working in them and also working through them. But what does that look like? Each church is unique, but we all have some good models, good models to guide us back to the future to see how God worked in the early church and to see how he might want to work in our lives, in our churches today. So this morning, <coughs> I want to do something a little different. Uh, my normal way of preaching is to take one passage of Scripture and just talk about that one passage of Scripture. But today, I want to sort of weave a story of the church for you today. And to do that, I want us to look at several verses of Scripture, passages of Scripture. So I hope that you have your Bible. If you, if you do, you can uh, jot down notes and maybe look at it later. If you don't, you can, I'll, I'll read these passages so that we can uh, un look at them together. So I want to sort of look at a story of God's movement in the early church. And then I want to touch on some of those highlights. The first thing I would say is that we need to understand that the church is founded on Christ alone. There's no other foundation that we have but Jesus Christ. In the, in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 16, a passage of scripture where Jesus had gathered with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. If you go and look on a map today, you would find it's just south of the border of Israel and Lebanon. And Jesus gathered with his disciples and he asked them some questions. The first question was for information. He says, who do the people say that I am? And they told him who, they, they, uh, who people were saying that he was. Some said uh, John the Baptist. Some said Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus turned to them and asked them a question not for uh, information, but a question that required commitment. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the, for the crowd in Matthew 16 and verse 16, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus told Peter that he was blessed because God had revealed that to him. And then he said in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades 
will not overcome it. Now, we could spend a lot of time discussing what does it mean, who is the, that Christ is building the church on? Is it Peter? Is it Peter's confession? Is it Peter and others? Uh, I don't want to talk so much about that today, but just to point out, Jesus said, it's his church. I'm going to build my church. We know that Peter indeed was a very important person when we read the book of Acts, the first uh, seven or so chapters focus on Peter's ministry, but then Peter diminishes and we see the ministry of Paul and others in the rest of the book of Acts. But the point that I want to make this morning is that Jesus said, I will build my church. Peter made a confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So what is the church built on? It's built on Jesus Christ. If we were to go on and read that uh, full passage of scripture, we, we, we would notice that Jesus is the Christ. That means that he is the one that the Jewish people were looking for for hundreds of years, the Messiah, the, the anointed one who would come to deliver God's people and save them from their enemies and to rule over them. And Jesus was the Christ, but he was not the kind of Christ that his generation was looking for. He wasn't a political deliverer. But instead, he will go on to say, the kind of Christ that I am is the kind of Christ who will suffer for your sins. And so he describes that he is the one who would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised again. And so he is the Messiah. He is the one that we are looking for to deliver us but he delivers us from a much greater enemy than political enemies. He delivers us from sin, from the grave, from death. But he does so not by overcoming his enemies as a political, as a general might, but instead by dying, by suffering and dying for the sins of the people. He goes on to say that uh, through his life he set an example and those who follow him would have to count the cost. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so Jesus sets an example and calls his followers to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And then he would go on to say that he is the Messiah who will one day judge the world. In chapter 16 and verse, uh, verse 27, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And so this is the one that the church is built on, the Messiah who will one day judge the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and he is building it one person at a time through love, through proclaiming his message. Later this week, I, I hope to meet a friend of mine that I first met in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, his name is Samer, and Samer was a, uh, I would call him a, a militant Muslim who lived in Israel, and then he moved to, uh, to Lebanon, and he lived in one of the uh, refugee camps there. And he uh, shared with me that 
all of his life, he grew up to hate two groups of people, Jewish people and Americans in his case. He said he moved to, uh, to Lebanon and one day he heard a street preacher. Uh, it's legal uh, in, in, in uh, Lebanon, it's not in most Muslim countries, but it's legal in Lebanon to preach the gospel freely. And so he was standing, this man was standing on a street corner and was preaching and Samer began to argue with him. And then later they began to discuss with each other. And finally they sat down and drank tea together. And in the end, after a period of time, Sommer gave his life to Christ because he realized this is the one that he had been looking for. And his life was dramatically changed. And Sommer began to share that message with everybody that he knew, including his family who uh, threatened to kill him. And that's where I met him then at a seminary where they were uh, keeping him uh, safe for a while. Eventually, Sommer moved to the United States. He currently lives in New York City, but he's just coming back from Turkey where he's met uh, and shared the gospel with a number of people there and is coming to encourage some Syrian Christians that he knows in and around the area of Frankfurt. Here is a, a man whose life was changed by a person Jesus Christ because of the message of the good news. And Sommer is part of a spiritual awakening that is occurring around the world, though we hear very little about it. In the last 15 years, more Muslims have come to Christ than in the previous 15 centuries. You would not know that by listening to the news, by reading the newspapers, but statistics show that people are looking for the truth of the gospel. The message of the church is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. But I want us also to notice that the church is founded upon Jesus Christ, but the church is empowered for God's global mission. In the book of Acts, and we'll spend the rest of our time, or at least almost all of our time, in the book of Acts, because Acts tells the story of how God worked in the early church. And it starts out with a reminder that just before Jesus went back to heaven, he gathered with his disciples. Uh, they were talking about some things, but he says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts is the story of how God's Holy Spirit empowered the early church to proclaim and to live out the message of Christ, the good news. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, upon you, and you will be my witnesses, he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. A witness is a person who has experienced something and then tells about their experience. And Jesus is telling his church, I want you who have experienced my salvation, my life in you, you are going to be witnesses to the rest of the world to tell about it. A witness cannot tell about something that he has not experienced. But if Christ has changed you, then you have a story to tell. And so Jesus said, it would start where they were, right there in Jerusalem. And the first seven chapters of the book of Acts 
tell us about the church as it started there in Jerusalem. But Jesus said it wouldn't stay there. It would move on to Judea, which was the outer region, and Samaria. And when we read in chapters 8 through 12, we, we read about the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And then Jesus said it will go to the ends of the earth. And beginning in chapter 13 of Acts through the end of the chapter, we read how the gospel took root and began to spread throughout all of the known world at that time. I think that we, churches like FIBC, have a unique opportunity to embrace the gospel and to share the gospel in their Jerusalem and in their Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not we do it here or here or here, but we're to be doing it in all of those places at the same time. And international churches have a unique opportunity because we meet people from every part of the globe. We really don't have to go out anywhere, but people are coming to us. People from every part of the world. And each of our lives touches people from every part of the world. To go to the ends of the earth who are at our doorsteps. The Lord is building his church. I was in a church in Bitburg, Germany, which is uh, sort of west of, of, of Frankfurt. And I listened to the story of a Vietnamese man who told that he had come some years before from North Vietnam, he had fled and eventually ended up in the United States of America. And he wanted to become a citizen and so he joined the military. It's one of the pathways to becoming a citizen. And when he joined the military, they sent him to Germany. And in Germany, he came to an IBC church, and there it was for the first time that he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, isn't that unusual that me, a Vietnamese, would go to the United States, come back to Germany, and hear the gospel in a language that's not my first language, but I came to know Jesus Christ, who is my Savior. The Lord is building his church. Eric and, and, and myself and others know a family called the Yusefis who were, uh, were immigrants or who, ref, who, were, who fled from Iran and ended up in Sofia, Bulgaria. And it was there that an IBC church reached out to them and shared the gospel with them. And they came to know Christ for themselves and began to share the gospel with all of their friends, their uh, Farsi-speaking friends. They would take the pastor's sermons and translate them into Farsi and hand them out to all of their friends. And eventually they went to Athens, and then they went to Paris, and now they are in the Netherlands. They also have tried to encourage groups in Denmark and other places. What was happening was these Iranian uh, Farsi speakers were coming, they were hearing the gospel and accepting Christ, and then they were going to other parts of Europe. And so the gospel was spreading in that way, but it started in this church, English-speaking church, that was reaching out to internationals. Well, how will the church now respond to the latest developments in Europe when the Muslim world is coming to our doorstep from Syria and Iraq and many other places? God has given us, I believe, an opportunity. And we can only do what God has called us to do because we are empowered by his spirit for his global mission. I want us to look at a couple of models of churches that we have in the New Testament. 
Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. You remember that after this promise that Jesus said that I'm going to give you power and you're going to be my witnesses, that they began to share the gospel with others. Peter stood up when people questioned what's going on here and he began to share with them the truth of the gospel. And we read in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 37, when the people heard what Peter said, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we're told that day that 3,000 people, Jewish people, responded to the message of Peter. And then we have the first of what are many summaries that we read about in the book of Acts of what the early church was like. And I want you to notice that we have a model for what a healthy church looks like right here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 and then again in chapter 4. The scripture says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And I'll not read all of that, but I want you to notice they devoted themselves to the teaching, to learning about God's word. Jesus had passed on his message to the apostles and now they were passing on the truths of, that Jesus passed on to them to the rest of the church. And then it says they were also devoted or committed to the fellowship. And it's interesting that there's the word the fellowship. It's not just fellowship in general, but they were devoted to this idea of being together, of committing themselves to one another. And perhaps the next things that he says, the breaking of bread, could refer to their worship in the fellowship as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And it says they were also committed to prayer. And prayer is a common theme and a mark of a healthy New Testament church. And we read the results of that in verse 47. It says, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And so if you think about this Jerusalem church, we see learning, we see loving, we see an openness to one another, we see a unity, we see generosity as they shared with one another, we see worship, we see witness, and we see prayer. We have another summary just a couple of chapters later in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. And it sounds very similar to what happened in Acts chapter 2. In verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Notice the unity that he mentions in mind and heart, the sharing of what they had with one another and the power and the witness of the apostles as they told about the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, the grace of God was upon them. I believe it was this unity that they had together, 
this God-given unity that came from the Holy Spirit as they spent time together and as they prayed with one another and as they learned together that caused them to share with one another. Not to be selfish, but to be generous with one another in practical ways. And so it's no wonder that the needs of all of the people, it says, were being met. Ministry was happening. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor and writer, says ministry takes place when divine resources, when God's resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. God's resources connect with human needs through loving channels that should be God's people and they do it for the glory of God. And ministry was happening. This doesn't mean that the church didn't have any challenges. In fact, if you go on reading, you find that uh, in chapter 6, just a, a few uh, chapters later, there's a, a challenge that they need to settle. And the, the apostles say you need to select seven people to help in this ministry so we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the study and, and teaching of the Word. And the Scripture tells us then in Acts 6 that God blessed that decision and the church continued to grow. And so the church was healthy and these healthy leaders built a healthy church and healthy churches will grow naturally. Just like a tomato plant, if you plant it and do all of the right things, the natural thing for that plant is to grow. And the natural thing for a church is to grow if it's healthy. So we have this model for health. But I want to share with you one other church. Not the Jerusalem church, but the Antioch church. To do that, we need to go on to chapter 10 in Acts. Remember, after what we've talked about, the church was still largely limited to the city of Jerusalem. And it was still mostly Jewish people in the church. And then something happened that could have destroyed the church. But instead, God used it to scatter the church and to spread the gospel so that it began to go around the world. We read in chapter 8 of persecution. One of the seven who had been chosen to help with the practical needs of the church, his name was Stephen, and Stephen preached a message to those who uh, questioned him. And Stephen was stoned, we read. And because of that, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we read that the church was scattered. There was a great persecution that broke out against the church, and it tells us that everybody except for the apostles were scattered to different places. Remember that early on it was the apostles who were doing all of the preaching and all of the uh, demonstration of God's Spirit, but now they are still in Jerusalem and the rest of the church has been scattered. And we read some remarkable stories after this of God using people who had been scattered, like Philip, to Greek, who began to speak to Greek-speaking Gentiles. We read uh, then in chapter 9 about a man named Saul who persecuted the church. And he came to know Christ in a personal way. We don't know him so much as Saul, but as Paul in the New Testament who was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. But we read in chapter 10 
beginning in verse 19, a remarkable thing that began to happen is these Christians were scattered. Excuse me, not chapter 10, but chapter 11 and verse 19. It says, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is a very significant time in the life of the church because for the first time, a significant number of non-Jews began to turn to the Lord. It wouldn't have happened had there not been persecution and these people not been scattered. But we're going to see that this church in Antioch became a beautiful model for a church that was mobilized, not only healthy, but a church that was reaching out beyond itself a church that was sending people out to other places, and a church that was touching the lives of many different people. So initially, the church was made up of these Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, and then it began to spread, and it was made up of some of the Greek-speaking Jews. But now we read about Greek-speaking Gentiles who are coming to the Lord. And a man named Barnabas is sent out from Jerusalem to encourage these people in the Lord. And he comes alongside them and he helps them to have courage. And note the message in verse 20 of uh, chapter 11. It says, they were preaching the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the results in verse 24, many Gentiles believed. They were grateful to the Jerusalem church and they sent a gift to them because now the church was having uh, problems because of uh, a famine in the land. But look with me in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, and we read about this church in Antioch. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, excuse me, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work for, to which I have called them. So after this, they, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. This church now begins what Jesus said the church should be, witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they send off Paul and Barnabas, two of their very best members, on this mission to preach the gospel. And it's interesting that it says the church sent them off, but it also says that the Holy Spirit sent them off. And that's how the church should work. The Holy Spirit should lead us and empower us, and we send off those that should go. And so it's a key moment in the life of the church, and the results would be beyond their imagination as churches began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so here is a a mobilized church moving toward effectiveness and living out the mission and the vision that God had given to them in response to his grace. 
And it's a powerful strategy of moving where God was leading them to move and depending on God for direction and also power and courage. And they were doing it together. And that's what God wants our churches to do. Next door to our office is Bethel uh, International Baptist Church. They've had a number of refugees who've come and their, their church has tried to touch. And they've actually given asylum to several of these refugees who could stay for three or, or four months and, and it helps with their ability to get, get their process of becoming legal uh, or becoming uh, documented. And the church has reached out to these people together. Every night, groups of people were coming to bring food and teach them German language and English language and minister to them in practical ways. Every church has some opportunity to be involved in the lives of people that God brings to them as they do so together. Just a few weeks ago, Laurie and I were in Cape Town, South Africa, in the IBC church there. And we went into a room that was the library. There were many books in the room. But it also served as a resource room. They had computers and all kinds of things because they were reaching out to people who were coming from other countries. And it was also the prayer room where we met to pray uh, together. And I thought, well, what a beautiful place to have your resources, your prayer, and also your library all there in the same room. They are doing it together. I don't know what God will have uh, this church or other churches to do in the current refugee crisis, but I do know that God is asking us to respond in some way. The question is, how will we respond? Will it be in fear? Will it be in resentment? Or will it be in love and compassion and witness the way that the Antioch church reached out? We're told the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love our neighbor as ourself. And I think when churches work together to obey the Lord, the results will be eternal. They will be beyond our ability to see. So let me just close with one last church. It's the church of heaven. <laughs> Uh, we, we get a glimpse of that in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. A glimpse into the future. We've sort of looked back. Now let's look ahead. At a time of discouragement, disappointment, suffering, and even martyrdom for the church, God gives a glimpse, a glimpse to the Apostle John of the future church. And we read about this great gathering. Well, not look at the whole chapter, but I just want to read a few of those verses in Revelation 7 and verse 9. No doubt verses that you've read before. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you picture this great gathering, this massive number of people no one could count, this inclusive group of people who come from every tribe, tongue, language, from every part of the world at different times in history? 
This worshipful gathering because they are proclaiming that it's God's salvation that has made it possible for them to be there. And it's a victorious group. They are wearing the, the, the crown. They are wearing the, carrying the palm branches and wearing the white robes. Jesus said, I will build my church and not even the gates of Hades can stand against the church. Nothing can stop it. Every new church that is planted is a new light in the darkness. And every new believer, every new person who comes to Christ is a, new, is a trophy of God's grace and his love for the world. And together the church is moving toward a future that brings the best to people and that brings the glory to God. So let me just encourage you, we don't need to invent anything new. The church belongs to Jesus Christ and his church is moving ahead in victory. So let's let the church be the church. Someone has written, God has always had a people. Many foolish conquerors thought that because he has uh, driven the church of Jesus Christ out of sight, that he had stilled its voice and he had snuffed out its life. But God has always had a people. The powerful current of a river is not diminished because it's forced to flow underground. But the purest water is that stream that bursts crystal clear into the sunlight after it's been forced to go through solid rock. There are charlatans like Simon the magician who sought to barter on the open market that power that cannot be bought or sold. But God has always had a people, men who could not be bought and women who were beyond purchase. God has always had a people. There have been times of affluence when the church's message has been nearly diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially acceptable and financially profitable. The church has been gold-plated. It's been draped in purple and encrusted in jewels. It's been misrepresented, ridiculed, lauded, and scorned. And these followers of Jesus Christ have been, according to the times, elevated as saints, are murdered as martyrs and heretics. Yet through it all, there marches this powerful army, God's chosen people, who cannot be bought, flattered, murdered, or stilled. On through the ages, they march. God's church, the church, triumphant, alive, and well. Let's bow together for prayer. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.